Um, if you have your Bible, you want to go ahead and open to the book of Ephesians. We're in a series through that. Um, but before we get there, I wanted to update everyone uh, quickly. Just um, I know we've, we've had a couple questions about the, the marriage uh, seminar. That's not just, I know it, it says $25 a couple. It's not just for married couples. Uh, maybe you're a single person who's dating someone really seriously and you would, you know, whether it's them or someone else you'd like to prepare, or maybe you're just a single person and you're like, you know, I still hope to get married someday and I'd like to go and learn about marriage. Um, so there's a place to register on the, the website there uh, for you as well. So uh, last, uh, last week uh, was the first time we were able to have COA kids uh, for like elementary school age kids since COVID. Um, it, was, it was a really beautiful day. Um, the kids were uh, excited about being there. Uh, we were debriefing with uh, Janie this week, our COA kids director, and she was talking about how she taught the kids about how God knows everything. Um, and like knows the future, knows, you know, what, what's going to happen tomorrow. And she said, one of the kids looked at her and said, you mean God knows the next time I'm going to ride a Ferris wheel? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's so, so random, <laughs> but it was so awesome. She's like, yes, God knows the next time you're going to ride a Ferris wheel. Um, anyway, it, it, uh, it was such a blessing uh, to have the, the kids in there. They have not had like, I mean, this is like Sunday school for them. If you grew up in church, this is Sunday school, basically. They're getting that, the Bible stories and the gospel. Um, but one of the things we've run into is uh, coming out of COVID, a uh, number of volunteers we've had has been diminished, partly because of COVID concerns. But uh, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, we, we, we don't have enough to keep the elementary school space open regularly right now. It's going to be like once a month to start with. Um, and I want to encourage you, uh, if you're a parent, uh, volunteer you, just once a month. You can, you can help out in there, and that would be amazing. Uh, but for, for those of you that don't have kids, I would say this. Do you hope that someday you'll have kids? And if you do, do you hope that you'll be a part of a church that invests in those kids and disciples them? I bet you do. And so I would encourage you, we have a, a strong vetting process that's cr about creating a safe space, um, but a safe space is not enough if you don't have enough workers, right? We need, we need more workers, more people to help. And the goal is not that you're like, oh gosh, I'm in co-kids from now until September. It's literally, if we get enough, it's like once or twice a month uh, that you're doing that. And you get to disciple the children of our congregation. So I want to encourage you to consider that. The easiest way for you to do it right now at this very moment, rather than tuck that in the back of your mind, is find that connection card seated right next to you somewhere. Grab that, write your name on the front, email, and right on the back, I want to help with co-kids. And uh, our co-kids director will reach out to you. I don't see any of you reaching out for your pieces of paper. So go ahead and do that now. Everybody just do that, and we'll be in good shape. Um, <laughs> So uh, we've got a lot to cover today. Today is the second message in a series on marriage. And I do not say this a lot, but la this week's message is so utterly dependent on last week's message um, that I almost uh, wish if, if you weren't here, you didn't watch online or you didn't listen, that you wouldn't listen to this message. But um, you're here, so <laughs> praise God, you're going to hear this message. But what I would argue or, or deeply encourage you to do is go home and then uh, get on our Facebook page or uh, our Vimeo, uh, our um, website. You can find it on our website as well. Sermons are there, um, and you could go back and watch that. I'm going to summarize a little bit, but don't have time to like really do it justice, or I would be preaching last week's sermon again. So nobody wants that. 
Um, so as we talk about you know, marriage and the second week of marriage, there's lots of different backgrounds in this room. I, I come from a family that my mom and dad are still married, 56 years. Um, they, they modeled for me uh, what a healthy, not perfect by any stretch marriage looks like, a commitment to each other, but also just a beautiful, deep friendship. They, they, uh, they just do life together, right? Um, but others of you, have come from uh, more uh, broken homes. Either you're, you're, you grew up in a home where mom and dad maybe are still married, but uh, functionally they do not get along and they're just kind of living under the same roof together. But some of you, your parents are divorced, right? You, you experience that. Uh, Teresa, my wife, came from a family that had some dysfunction through her whole uh, childhood, and then her parents got divorced when, while she was in college. Um, one of the things that, that's so important about that is uh, that we bring our family of origin into our marriage. Whether you want to or not, good or bad, you bring your family of origin into your marriage. So if Teresa, for example, had some issues uh, trusting, right? Trusting um, because there were points where her father wasn't trustworthy. And, um, and so she had issues trusting me. And it took a long time for us to work through that. And unfortunately, we didn't have anybody who was helping us do that, right? We didn't have any uh, mature couples and, uh, that were walking with us, so we had to figure that out. Um, in my case, you know, I came, fr- I came uh, from a home that, uh, that never had uh, any problem dealing with conflict. We would deal with it very passionately, um, but the truth was we, we would deal with it and get to a point of resolution, everybody would go to bed and we'd be fine. Um, but we would, we would, we, it was like a family of lawyers or something. We were <laughs> negotiating. <laughs> Objection, your honor. Um, so I, that's how I, that's how we fought. That's how I fought. And of course, what would she do? Because she lacked the ability to trust me at that time would, she would shut down. And so we had this like, uh, issues for five years of our marriage of like learning to really be able to trust each other and for me to be able to learn to uh, communicate and for us to disagree in healthy ways. Um, you are, for better or for worse, regardless of how our culture paints it, you are not an autonomous individual who walks into a marriage. You are the product of your family, but not just your family, all, all, all your previous relationships. If you're an adult in your 30s and, uh, and you get married, you've, you've, you've got a lot of life behind you. You've got a lot of adulthood behind you as well. And some of that has shaped and does shape how you go into um, marriage. When I look back at Teresa and I, I think about, uh, we got married and I was 22, she was 24, um, which by the way, uh, is not as bad as it sounds. Uh, a recent study came out and said, a uh, recent survey, uh, um, a research, so that if you get married in your 20s, as long as you don't live together before you get married, you have a high rate of success in marriage. As long as you don't live together before you get married. So there's something, you know, I think we're a product of that. But, you know, when people ask me, what is, how did, how did you make it? You're almost 28 years of marriage, um, besides her having a lot of patience along the way. How did you make it? And it really is how I would argue we kept coming back to the gospel. We kept coming back to our faith. We kept um, pressing into grace and, and what it means to walk with Christ. Um, and, I, and I know that you might think uh, you've heard, how many of you have heard this statistic Christians get divorced at the exact same rate as the, the culture at large. Everybody heard that statistic? The problem with statistics <laughs> is that they don't tell the whole story. So that stat is actually only self-identified Christians in America, person who describes themselves as a Christian, who also the average person who describes themselves as a Christian only goes to church a few times a year. 
You look at the actual uh, couples who go to church regularly, which is a better indicator of their actual faith and their practice. Couples that go together re uh, regularly. Harvard recently demonstrated that couples, married couples that go to church together regularly reduce their divorce rate 47%. That's staggering, isn't it? That's like having the divorce rate, cutting it in half. And the, the question is why? It's basically saying if once a week, you, even just once a week, we're not talking about like super Christians here, but just people who go to church on Sunday, once a week, you're taking that time together to, to be in a body and to put yourself under the teaching of God's word and worshiping with God's people. There's something that happens there that helps you. And they actually said the next indicator of even stronger marriages is couples who pray together. Couples who pray together have even like a higher uh, um, um, protection against divorce. So I did, um, with today's message and what we're talking about, the, the, uh, um, focusing on what Christ's purpose in uh, marriage is and the ways that we relate to each other in marriage from Ephesians 5, um, I chose to do a survey, um, I don't know, I guess it was six or eight weeks ago, I sent a survey out to like eight or 10 husbands and wives separately, husbands and wives in, the, in COA. And I got some good answers back related to what is the best thing about being in a Christian marriage or Christ-focused marriage. And so here are a few, um, they'll be on the screen. <clears throat> One wife said, there's an agreed to source of truth and guidance that we can both cling to when we disagree. The conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives that leads us to reconcile with each other is also huge. A husband said, not just having fun together, I like that. That's not having fun, but not just having fun, but growing together and becoming holy each day. Actually, reminds me of a saying that uh, uh, Gary Chapman wrote a book around, which he should have written a blog around. But um, it's basically uh, God didn't give you marriage to be happy; He gave marriage to be for you to be holy. And now, holiness can lead to happiness, but it's often uncomfortable in the process, right? Um, thirdly, another husband put it this way, your definition of love is defined by the unbreakable, merciful covenant Christ has made with this church and not by your feelings. Oh, that's huge, right? And then finally, uh, another wife said this, that we are both striving to serve God in our relationship and that the Bible is pretty clear about how we are supposed to act towards each other, both from this passage and others in scripture. Also, the grace that comes along with striving to be Christ-like in our marriage. Our model of Jesus is, is as generous, merciful, and loving towards us helps when we don't feel like being uh, that way to each other. So again, there's this, this root, this picture of, of marriage there that's, um, and why, uh, uh, why the Christian faith and picture of marriage is actually not just beautiful and compelling, but it's also powerful and um, sustaining. Marriage has to be some, about something bigger. We're going to find in the, in our, we've looked at it last week, we're looking at it today. Marriage is about bigger than something like uh, feelings or self-actualization or happiness um, or achieving your life goals, Right? But that's where our culture sort of processes marriage. Over-romanticizes feelings. Those are ultimate feelings, right? Ultimate. And we looked at it last week. Love, uh, the ultimate love in the church is not romantic feelings. It is the uh, agape love, the, the brotherly and sisterly, unconditional familial love that comes in the family of God. Then eros, the, the, the type of love that's where we get our word erotic from, which would be more uh, romantic type of love, is, is just another type. But the undergirding love in the family of God is um, agape love. Some resources, I mentioned this first one last week, but just want to encourage you with some other ones. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. Um, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by Kathy Keller. Uh, that's actually, actually just a booklet, probably the best 
um, biblical explanation of, of complementarianism in a woman's role from uh, written by a woman who believes in these roles. Um, and so, and then finally, uh, Sam Alberry on is God anti-gay because I won't have time to talk about it today, but there's a question about gay marriage. What is that, you know, what is that about and all of that? We're going to deal with that in during, some during the God, gender, and sexuality study we'll have in the end of April. Uh, so you won't, definitely want to sign up for that, but I wanted to give you uh, uh, a book there as well. So let's look at Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Uh, when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord and uh, I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, remember, I told you last week, there's no verb in the Greek in verse 22. It's borrowed from verse 21. That's why we include that as the mutual submitting of all of us, including husbands and wives to each other out of reverence for Christ. And then what he does from here, I'm just real quickly, what he does from here is explain how does that work in marriage? Then how, and then next week we'll look at how does that work in parenting? And then the final week uh, related to this, we'll look at how does that work out uh, in our workplaces? So let's follow along. Verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hate, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. So I already mentioned it, but uh, last week we, we, we looked at the fundamental relationship in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ. Even husbands and wives are fundamentally and eternally brothers and sisters in Christ. <clears throat> and so there's a, in that sense, it's very important to understand singleness is not a detriment because that's a, we all relate that way as brothers and sisters in Christ. Married or not married, we are brothers and sisters in Christ in a family. Now, uh, the picture of, uh, or the, the marriage is a, a gift, um, in, in, and we see it in the New Testament, but Paul himself even says marriage is not the end all of anything. It's, in fact, singleness has its own gifting, its own uh, blessings that are different um, for, uh, than for those who are married. But um, while we hold to our family, spiritual family is primary, we don't want to miss the picture that uh, Christ. Um, paints or is painted here for us uh, in the image of Christ in his church. Last week, we talked about marriage being rooted in creation. So this is, this is by the way, what, I'm going to step back and give you a brief hermeneutical lesson. I know you're like, what's hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation of texts. And in this case, scripture, we're, we're studying how to interpret scripture. And I'm going to give you a clue. How do you know if something is cultural or whether it's like a, an overarching principle? You look in the text, you look at, you frame it out, you look at the context 
uh, and you look for clues if something is purely temporal or cultural, which is what um, some egalitarians or egalitarians would argue about this text. So this is purely cultural just for that moment, that time in Ephesus doesn't have anything to do with today or any other culture in the world. The problem with that is that uh, this text both looks backwards and forwards to eternal realities. One being God created the world. God created man and woman, and Genesis 2.24 is quoted here. The man and woman shall come together and be one flesh, right? But it also points to the new creation of, of Christ and his church being united together. So there's, there's definitely something bigger than what's a message to the Ephesian church here. This is a message for all, all of us. <laughs> oh, Okay. <clears throat> I hope my sermon doesn't let you down. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting ready to be a granddad. The uh, dad juices are running, running deep. Um, <laughs> the picture of marriage that I just read admittedly is, is, is somewhat weird in the West, uh, church in the West, and extremely weird in our culture, right? The, the, the larger culture. But what I, I want us to understand is this wasn't, uh, uh, this was weird then too. It was weird in the Roman world. It was weird in Ephesus. If you look at the understanding of marriage in the Roman Empire, uh, sex was very open. Ephesus itself had the, the temple of Artemis where there was prostitution, regular prostitution. Uh, sex out of wedlock was expected and common and adultery was generally not frowned on, especially for men in that culture. And so you, you, you have this whole, not unlike our culture's view of sex and marriage, but now you have uh, Jesus, you have this picture that Paul paints of Jesus and his church, and that being what marriage is ultimately about. So what is the, the, the core of marriage? We talked about this last week, but it is about a covenant. It's about a promised relationship ratified by God between a husband and a wife. Um, and just like uh, a covenant, um, it means you're all in. This isn't a contract. This isn't a, I'll do my part if you'll do par- your part. And, and, and you can tell when you're relating to your spouse this way because you feel like they've let you down on some things, so you start, let, you start pulling back in some ways. You're relating out of a contract at that point, not a covenant. Covenant says, I'm all in, period. And if you let me down, I'm not giving up. I'm gonna keep going, right? And we're gonna figure this out because what that keeps bringing back people, both people back to when they're committed to a covenant is when they fail, when they fail each other, they keep coming back because there's this idea of I'm all in and letting me down is not a condition that causes me to pull out of this covenant or to pull back in this covenant. So what is this picture of marriage? I'm gonna put this on the screen here. Marriage is meant to be a man and a woman covenanted in Christ who voluntarily and lovingly carry out their roles for the good of each other and to the point others to Christ. That's a summary of Ephesians 5's picture of marriage here. Um, There's only one problem with why my marriage doesn't reflect this perfectly and your marriage doesn't if you're married. What's that? Sin, right? (laughs) If it weren't for sin, we would all just totally kill this. But sin has, has entered into every marriage. It's so funny, every couple I do premarital counseling with, I said, you know, the biggest obstacles in your marriage are not your mom and your dad and, you know, work and pressure and finances and all of that. It's that you're a sinner and you're a sinner and you live in a sinful world. Besides that, you guys are going to be great, right? Like, 
And, and I've never had one couple go, oh, we're not, you know, I'm perfect or she's perfect or he's perfect, right? No, they, 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 no one has uh, failed to acknowledge that. And yet we sometimes function out of this idea of like, oh, my spouse should be, shouldn't be letting me down, right? Biggest problem in my marriage, biggest problem in your marriage is that sin and selfishness has entered. Um, this is interesting. Uh, in the survey, I asked what, uh, husbands and wives what the biggest challenge to, to living out a Christian marriage is. Every one of them, every one of them in one way or another basically said, I'm sinful. <laughs> like, it was so interesting. I'm kind of selfish, right? Um, and it's, 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 so that's an underground, uh, that's a, a thread. And we can either act like that's not true or what our culture does is act like our selfishness is me just watching out for me right? Me just making sure I'm okay and getting what my needs met and getting what I want. You know what that is? That's narcissism. It's making the world about yourself. And narcissists don't make good spouses. And you put two narcissists in a marriage and that's going to last five minutes. But what happens when two people recognize that they're narcissistic or that we all have tendencies to be selfish and want our own way, then there's an opportunity. And this is what happens. You begin to recognize that is the problem. Not your spouse, your own selfishness. And then you begin to go, well, I can work on that. And that's the key to our marriage. I can work on mine. This is what the beauty of this picture of marriage, and I would suggest, I'd argue this, this is the craziest thing about this picture. It's not just a picture. He doesn't go, hey, just look over here at this thing. That's what your marriage is supposed to be like. He is literally picturing, not to, he's showing us not just the picture of marriage, but the power to actually live out your marriage. The love of Christ for you. The love of Christ for you as his church allows you to live out the picture of the love of Christ in his church as husband and wife. So let's walk through these, uh, these, two, these two commands. We've got commands for husbands, wives and husbands. He starts with wives, so we're going to start with wives. This is what he says to wives. He goes, wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Now, that word is a, is a bad word. It's not a four-letter word, but it's a four-letter word. You know what I'm saying? Um, and, and so I totally get that that gets a bad rap. But listen to what submission actually is in, from the Greek. It's a voluntary, not under compulsion, placing oneself under the authority of another. Notice no one balked when it said, we're supposed to submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. No one's throwing that out. No one's, oh, that's ridiculous. Why would I ever submit to other people in the church? Well, I would argue if you can submit to others in the church in your church family as a wife, then why is it hard to submit to your husband? So there's a calling there. And I would argue the picture of the husband's submission to his wife looks different, but it's in this text as well. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, Right off the bat, let me settle. Submission has nothing to do with equality. The definition of submission says you are choosing voluntarily to put yourself under another, not saying they're better than you. It is you choosing to humble yourself. Has nothing to do with intelligence. Ladies, you might very well be smarter than your husbands. Might has nothing to do with personality. God made you a strong leader. That's great. Awesome. Go lead. Use that gift. That's a good thing. In your marriage, though, there's a dynamic there that, that's calling you to respect your husband. And it says nothing about giftedness. Listen, I've seen wives who had their family budget planned, planned out in a 10,000-cell spreadsheet, right? Like multiple sheets, you know, uh, with, with uh, crazy formulas and all that, and a husband who does his financial planning on a, with crayons, right? Like, that's not saying that, that uh, oh, well, you know, he's just, you know, he's not supposed to lead his family now. It just means he's stupid if he doesn't rely on his wife. 
right? So it says nothing about giftedness, says nothing about ultimately how that um, works out specifically in your marriage in relation to giftedness or, or uh, you know, income or anything like that. This is about roles. The husband has a role, the wife has a role, and these are roles that uh, function in here, not for other, necessarily in relation to other people. One co-wife said it this way. She said, ultimately, I know that he, that is her husband, has spiritual accountability over me and our family. That God's going to hold him accountable in a way that's a little different than you. Doesn't mean you don't have any accountability, wives. It does mean that when God holds accountable the family, he's going to start with your husband. It's clear, though, that this text is not saying women should submit to men. You hear that? I want to make that abundantly clear. Some churches are what you would call, they're not complementarian, they're patriarchal, where just men have a favored position in the whole church, right? They, uh, every, every context, women are to sit in the back, women are to be quiet, women are not to be involved in leadership and serving on any teams or directing any context. Um, and, and that's a patriarchal church. That's not complementarianism. Complementarianism recognizes it goes as far as scripture does. Um, and in this context, no, a woman has no, a general woman in the congregation, single woman in the congregation, or a wife has no responsibility to submit to other men in any further than what we have that mutual verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But that submission looks fundamentally different in marriage, right? In that relationship with your husband. So a woman can be the CEO of a company, president, president of the United States, a four-star general or whatever. Doesn't have, she doesn't have to submit to men. Uh, when talking about wives and husbands, Paul gives here, both, in both cases, the motive, the basis, and the extent. So I'm getting really into the text here. Some of you really like that, you nerds like me. Um, so if you have your notes, you'll want to write these down. But uh, what is the motive for the wife? We'll talk about the motive of the husband in a minute. But Paul says the motive for the wife is as to the Lord. As to the Lord does not mean similarly or like to a wife or to, a, to, uh, uh, to the Lord, but that her actual submission to her husband is a way of submitting to God's plan. Her motive is service to God. This takes some of the conditional nature out of it. I could ask the wives in this room, how many of you have had your husbands let you down? And every hand would go up, right? So it can't be about, well, as long as he always loves me, like Christ loves the church, I will have no issue respecting him. Well, good luck right? That doesn't happen. There's an unconditional nature out of it because it means that there's meant to be like a tone or a culture to your, to your way of relating to your husband that's, that has a respect to it, even if he's failing, even if he has failed. A co-wife uh, put it this way, remembering that God always sees my behavior and attitude towards my husband and will bless me even if my husband is not acting Christ-like. Essentially, I'm serving God first always and trying to glorify him in everything that I do. So that's the, the motive, the extent, or basis here, sorry, the motive and the basis. The basis is that uh, Paul says the husband is the head. Um, the church submits to Christ because he is the head. Um, the, the, the wife is to submit to her husband because he is the head of the family. He has that role and that responsibility. Um, and he's, like I said, he's going to fail. There's only one perfect person in this whole text, right? And it ain't the wives and it ain't the husbands. It's Jesus, Right? So the whole context is not that we're operating out of perfect perfection, but that we're operating out of grace towards each other um, and, and living in that grace. This text, by the way, and I want to make this abundantly clear to husbands and wives, this text does not tell a husband that his job is to make sure his wife respects him and submits to him. This is a wife. 
This is a command to wives to voluntarily submit themselves to their husbands as to the Lord, as this text says. Uh, Tim Keller's wife, Kathy, she wrote this to describe this. She said, I discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty I coerced, uh, coerced from me. And that's important. So wives are to live this out. It doesn't mean there's no conversations between husbands and wives. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, but it does mean that the husband is not walking around. He doesn't lead by, make, by make, trying to make his wife submit. He leads by loving his wife like Christ loves the church. That's his part. Um, and the wife has her responsibility. So what's the extent here? Verse 24 says everything, in everything. This doesn't mean everything is in every single decision you have to go to your husband. What do you think of this? What do you think of this? I have no opinions. I don't have any thoughts about life. That's not what that's saying. It's simply saying that there aren't areas of your life that you're like, he doesn't need to have any part of this. He doesn't need to know anything about this. He doesn't need to think about this. He doesn't need to know about this. It means that you are wholly open to him and choose to respect him in, in every sphere of life. Now, the one exception for this whole thing, and I want to make this super, super clear, the exception is physical, emotional, mental abuse, right? No, no mistake, God does not want a woman to stay in a marriage where she is experiencing that. That is not, that is not on her, right? She is not responsible for that marriage. She, or in some cases we, we have seen uh, over the history of Koa, we have seen men who have been abused as well. And they want to try to hang in there and love their wives like Christ loved the church. And we've said, like, you need to separate for now because this is not a space for you to stay in because it's abusive. So just saying that um, very clearly. Uh, one, one, uh, one question I asked in the survey to husbands, um, in the husbands and I asked to the wives Ask them, like, how, what is some encouragement you would give to, to uh, wives on, on how husbands receive respect? Um, and it was interesting how many of them captured that idea of respect um, and actually asked for help. <laughs> um, ha, uh, this is what one husband said. He goes, husbands can be really obtuse. Sometimes the things that are so obvious to you could be completely lost on him. I speak for all husbands now. <laughs> we do not know what we're thinking. And so for you to assume we do, it's very dangerous. And sometimes we, and guys, we need to ask questions, right? We need to like ask questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> One of the things that uh, the husband said, uh, generally speaking, was that there was a sense of like how you speak about your husband, not just to your husband, but how he hears you talk about him or you, he knows you talk about him to other people, right? That's not to say you can't be real, but even as, even as you might talk to another wife about how to love your husband better and you're dealing with a challenge in your marriage, that's fine. That's, that's, that's not ungodly. But the tone of the way you choose to talk about him could be demeaning. And in which case, I would argue, not only are you disrespecting your husband in front of him, you're also doing it in your own heart. You're, you're letting that take root. Um, all right. Secondly here, husbands are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. This, without a doubt, is m way more weighty than the wives. <laughs> I would argue if, if and, I, and I believe, believe me in this, I say this with all truth and honesty. If we are ready to throw out that wives are to submit to their husbands, I demand that we throw this out. I do. Not just because like, well, I can't love my, this is way bigger 
This, con- this is an all-consuming call, right? He doesn't even tell wives to love their husbands. Did you notice that? I mean, that's crazy. But he says, not only are husbands to love their wives, but they're to love them like Jesus loves the church. Couldn't he have just said a lot, right? <laughs> love them a lot. But no, he, he literally pictures the greatest love in the history of the universe. And that's the husband's role. That's weighty. So what's the motive here? Uh, the motive, again, the motive, basis, and extent. The motive is her, he adores his church. Jesus didn't die, to his, die for his church so that he would love his church. He loved her before he died for her. He loved his people. He loved you and I even before the foundation of the world, right? Romans 5, 8, and this is love, that uh, not that we love God first, but that he loved us first and gave himself for us. Christ adores his church. But I would also argue um, the picture of Christ coming and dying was out of obedience to his father, obedience to God. So he loved the church, but he was also coming out of obedience to his father. So a husband is to love his wife because he adores her. And, And sometimes love is an act of the will. Not a feeling. So when I say love, don't think it means God, Jesus walks around with a I heart my church t-shirt on all the time, right? Where he wants to just send flowers to you and I. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a sacrificial self, um, self-sacrificing love. So this is what it means for a husband to love his wife like Christ loves the church is, is because of her, who she is. And then secondly, um, the basis The basis he gives here is as his own body. A man's wife is a part of him. The two have become one flesh. This is where I do not get men treating their wives poorly. I I get their sin and there's a tendency and maybe sometimes guys grow up in homes like that. So they treat their wives like their father treated their mother. But this is literally your one flesh. She's as much you as you are her. And you're missing that when you demean her, when you, uh, when you let her down, when you fail her. You respect, you're to respect your wife and honor her as part of your life, part of your very essence. Christ would never do anything to hurt his church. Paul says it's a call to nourish and cherish. Nourish and cherish is different for, for a lot of men and women. Some, some cross over there, but it's different, Right? Like for, for me, nourishing and cherishing is sometimes, uh, you know, giving me a, a, a beer and a pizza and letting me watch a football game. That's not my wife's love language, right? It's different. And so guys tend to go, well, if it's, if it's different, then that's hard and I don't want to do that. That's not, that's not the call here. We're called to nourish and cherish our wives, not cherish them the way we want to be cherished. This is where I'd argue, ask questions. Husbands, ask your wives, what does it mean? What does it look like for me to nourish you and cherish you? What, how can I do that better? Some co-husbands said this, be aware and care for a wife's physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. Another husband said, consciously and continuously investing in my wife's well-being. Listen, it's, it's, I would argue this, it's about being for your wife more than being for yourself. It's about being for her in every area of life, seeing her become everything God intended her to be. So in my case, um, Teresa 
Teresa served so many years behind the scenes with me, um, being a, 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 a master student, PhD student, having kids, small kids while I was doing a PhD and pastoring full time. Um, it was it was exhausting, right? Uh, a lot of crazy weeks. She stayed home for most of the time because, and, and even the transition to Boston, knowing our kids needed some extra attention. They were a little older. And at one point, three different, one was homeschooled, one was in public school, and one was in a private school. Like it was, it was crazy. And she did a great job. She helped plant the church. She served behind the scenes in lots of different ways to help the church to, to become what it did today. Um, and about five years ago, she made a major transition. She, she went back to work full time outside of the home. Um, and she went to work for a, a biotech uh, company over in Cambridge, and she's done really well. And it's been amazing for me, and she knows this. I was a, I was, I was a cheerleader. I was a big fan. I was a big fan of my wife all along. But she's killed it, like, way better than, like, we had anticipated. Um, and so she, she manages more people than I do now. She makes more money than I do now. Um, and I, am, I like love seeing her. She knows this. I am for her. If you asked her, she would, she would be quick to say, he is for me. A wife needs to know that her husband is really for her and not simply seeing her as a partner in his life, right? A husband said it this way. Um, co-husband, seek to lift your wife to a place for flourishing or of flourishing. She has unique gifts, cares, and passions, as well as pain points and struggles. Get to know your wife in the unique ways God has crafted her mind and her heart so you can help her be more like Christ in every situation. That's the calling. And then the extent here, finally. Motive basis and extent. Sacrificially, unconditionally, and singularly are all in this text. Sacrificially, because Jesus died for his church, right? Um, that means as a, as, a, as, a, as a husband, I want to make this abundantly clear, apart from Christ, there is no one or a thing higher in your affections in this world than your wife. Not your work, I would argue, not even the kids. Kids may require more attention, right? Especially when they're little, that's, that's understandable. But not the kids. Why? Because one day they're going to grow up and move out. It's happened to us. And that's a good thing, right? The good thing. And then it's just you two. So if you want to have a lifelong marriage, single kids, you know, then, then the two of you together again, like it's got to be about her. You've got to make sure that you take no days off on this. One husband said, lay aside any thinking about my time or my way or my preferences. They are your old, sinful, self-resisting, the sanctifying work of marriage. That's such a great line. And then another husband said, in everything, ask yourself, am I loving my wife? That's the sacrificial part of it. Unconditionally, he says, Christ doesn't put conditions on his love for his church, does he? He didn't look at you and say, you didn't have a quiet time last week. I'm done. I'm out. Right? He loves you. You know this. And so the husband's call is to love his wife unconditionally. And then finally, singularly, Genesis 2.24, which is quoted in verse 31 here, means uh, he's to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, which means his affection is for her only, which means there's no porn, there's no flirting, there's no side relationships. There is her. And the more a guy will do that, and a woman, I will argue, the stronger their relationship, and I would argue the deeper and more uh, profound the sex life is in marriage. I've shared this before, but Teresa and I were riding in a car about 
15 years ago when we were listening to uh, NPR and some scientists came, you know, came on, or they gave a report from scientists have discovered that if you, uh, that in monogamous couples, uh, the brain basically wires itself uh, when there's no like other relationships or porn or anything else, it basically wires itself sexually to each other. So that when you think of sex, it's with your spouse. When you think of beauty, when you th- think of arousal, it is your spouse. And I remember Teresa was like, well, I don't like that. They're kind of explaining. I'm like, no, no, think about it. Explain God. Explain how God wired us up. That, we're, that there's something beautiful and profound happens when we are committed to each other. And our minds and hearts aren't wandering in other places. The glory of this text here, though, and I want to bring in this in for conclusion. The glory of this text is that there's not a lot of guidance here, again, about specific couples. Husbands and wives, the husband might be this very strong, outspoken personality. The wife might be, uh, or the wife might be outspoken. The husband might be quiet or vice versa. It says nothing about those things. It simply says that in that relationship, there's a clear sense of roles and responsibilities there. He is trying to love her like Christ and she is respecting, submitting to him. And so I want to, uh, I would challenge you husbands right now, ask your wives, do you feel like I'm loving you well? Do you feel like I'm loving you well? How can I love you better? That should be a question a husband asks his wife regularly. Wives, you should ask your husband, do you, do you feel respected by me? Are there ways that I, you feel disrespected by me or I'm not supporting you? The beauty of this and why this picture matters is because we get to do something with our marriage that matters. We aren't two people carving out some time in this world, uh, a good thing in this world. We are a husband and wife picturing an eternal reality. You, if you're married or if you get married someday, you get the opportunity that no other relationship on earth gets to do. Doesn't mean that that single people don't get to do it in a different way. There's a whole different way of glory in that, right? But for Christian marriages, you get to display Christ and how you love each other. That matters. It means something in this world. And that's worth pressing into. My hope for our mar- my marriage and every marriage at COA is that we would point people to the gospel, not just with our words, but with our marriages ourselves, themselves. They would see this beautiful interplay of Christ and his church. This is the calling of marriage, the picture of marriage. Back in uh, 2013, Teresa and I got to go to uh, Yosemite. There should be a picture on the screen here. Um, Got to go to Yosemite. If you've never been to Yosemite Valley, just go. Put it on your bucket list. Whatever it takes, go there. It's, I mean, you can see it in the new heavens and new earth probably, but um, like, like get there. It's every picture I had seen, like this picture ahead of time, I was like, oh, that's beautiful. That's lovely. Look how lovely that is. You know what happens when you, when you, when you roll into Yosemite Valley on the ground? You're not looking at your pictures anymore. What's happened? Your pictures have become useless because all they did was give you a tiny glimpse of something glorious and beautiful and breathtaking that you were literally in the middle of. And that's marriage in this world that we get to be that picture. And sometimes it's a little grainy and sometimes it's black and white and sometimes it's a little overexposed, right? Or oversaturated or, you know, cropped weird. But that picture gets to point to this reality that one day every Christian gets to go be a part of. 
and get swallowed up in. So some next steps, if you're married, maybe you're in a really tough spot. I would encourage you, don't keep that between you. Don't keep that between you. Talk to another couple in your community group. Talk to your community group leader. Go talk to an elder if you need to. Um, me, like, let me know. Maybe you need to, uh, you're like, hey, we just need some, we have some rough areas we need to work through. The Boston Center for Biblical Counseling is a great place to go. There's, it's, you're not signing up forever, maybe just five or six sessions. And that just helps like smooth out some rough edges and you're able to like keep building, right? Um, encourage you to not sit back. Your marriage is either getting better or it's getting worse. I'll just say that. Um, also, the marriage seminar on March 26th. I encourage you to, we're going we're gonna to have some teaching, but there's also going to be lots of time for discussion. We're going to have panels. We're going to have uh, couples sharing and Q&A and all that kind of stuff. If you're married, um, I want you to, to, I want everybody to close their head, bow their heads and close their eyes. And I want you to, uh, if you're married, just grab your spouse's hand. And I want to, if you're, if you're single, I want to encourage you to pray for the couples around you in this, praying for them, for their marriages. They're, they're under attack in ways that you can't see. So this is just a sun, one Sunday. We're just going to focus on marriages in particular, but let's pray. Jesus, you have given us a picture that is higher more profound. It is a mystery that a, a, a short, momentary marriage in this world can somehow point to something eternal and beautiful. And we, we thank you for that. But God, every couple in this room struggles with sin. We struggle with selfishness. We struggle with pride. Some of us are experiencing pressures from the outside, just whether it's family or work or um, God, there can be so many things to enter into these marriages. So we pray today in the name of Jesus that you would empower these marriages, deepen their love for each other, help husbands to lay aside all the, the weights that keep them from um, loving and serving their wives sacrificially like Christ. I pray you would um, just fill these wives with the spirit that they might be able to um, respect their husbands and walk alongside them as partners and I pray that our marriages, Lord, would, would point others to Jesus for your name's sake, for your glory, for the good of our city, we pray. Amen.